Amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stones. My privilege and joy to be with you this morning. I serve primarily at our West congregation, um, but I also get the privilege of being able to travel around um, between our congregations to share um, God's word. You may or may not know this. We meet in six congregations all across the city today as the Austin Stone, all studying the same ancient text together, even though we find ourselves in this wonderful city in very uh, different contexts um, uh, all across those six. I love it. What a thought. Uh, This morning, you have thousands of brothers and sisters across Austin studying the same verses, hearing the same message. And so if you think you're alone in your journey of faith, You just aren't. And so just enjoy some of the largesse, that that privilege that God gives us of being a a large and diverse church that gathers in smaller congregations across the city. We're continuing in our verse-by-verse study of a 2,500-year-old text, one that chronicles the life of a man named Nehemiah. That's part personal journal entry, and so if you're wondering if your journal entries matter, well, God might use them for the edifying of thousands and millions of people across the world. It's part historical document, as there's kind of chronicles of the people of Israel recorded in it, and it's all beautifully preserved for us today, for our learning and for our growth in Christ-likeness and sanctification. Uh, How kind God has been to give us his word, to preserve it for us today. I don't think Nehemiah had any idea when he's writing diary entries of his journey to Jerusalem, that this is gonna be used for the advancing of the kingdom and for the teaching of millions of people to come, just the kindness of God. And so if you have your Bibles, and if you have the study guide, um, if you don't, I'd encourage you to find a way to get one, talk to one of your congregational leaders, got a place for notes, you can uh, write along as we go. But if you have your Bibles with you, Nehemiah chapter two and verse nine is where we will be. Now, I know that some of you are gonna roll your eyes or roll the eyes of your heart internally if you're passive aggressive. Um, I can tell them both because I roll the eyes of my heart at almost everyone I I meet all the time. It's one of my besetting sins, right? But I do wanna just contextualize Nehemiah 2 verse nine. I wanna just tell us where we have been so that when we jump in, we understand exactly what we are looking at. The context is it's about 450 years before Christ. And the story opens um, in the city of Susa, which is in modern day Iran, right? At the winter palace of the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, when you hear these names, you hear these places, they, can't kind of, they sound kind of mythical, like in the realm of fantasy, right? They sound kind of like magical. These are real people in real places. We have historical documentation to back that all up, right? So the story of Nehemiah doesn't start a long, long time ago in a land far, far away, right? It's not a thing of imagination or allegory. It is a matter of history. We're diving into the lives of very real people. Who's Octaxerxes? Well, he's the most powerful leader in that part of the world. He rules over the Persian Empire. And part of how he has gained the power that he has is through expansive colonial efforts, right? And so empires have risen up and they have overthrown other empires. And so the Assyrians have been kind of bosses of the region. They've overthrown another of, a number of other kingdoms. Then the Babylonians came along and they overthrew the Assyrians. And then the Persians have come in 
and they've taken over that whole region and a bunch more land. And part of the people that they possess basically as an inheritance, right, because of their colonial domination is they get given the people of Israel and the people of Judah who are now in two distinct camps in two distinct kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they get they get given to this empire of Persia and to its ruler Artaxerxes. So the stories open. The story opens with a journal entry of one of these Jewish exiles, a son of one of those who has been carried off into a foreign land, and he is a servant of this Persian king. And this is this man Nehemiah. Right? He's from Jerusalem in terms of his history, but he's living in Susa, so living in Iran, serving Artaxerxes because his people have been carried off um, as possessions into a foreign land. Now, where the story of Nehemiah starts is Nehemiah hears that some of his Jewish brothers and sisters had been allowed to return to Jerusalem, right? And so Octazosis, well, actually the ruler before him, um, has, has allowed people to engage in their traditional modes of worship as a celebration of sorts of multiculturalism in the Persian Empire. And so he's an overlord to be sure, but kind of a benevolent overlord, right? Which is the kind of overlord and maniac dictator that you want. If you're gonna have a maniac dictator, have one who's quite nice. Um, and they fit in this kind of territory, unless of course you were part of the, uh, the, the Greek armies that were fighting against them, then they weren't that nice um, at all. You've seen the 300 probably, um, or you should, right? That's the Persians. Um, uh, th- that's what was going on in the world. And Nehemiah hears, hey, the people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem. I wonder how it's been going. And so his brother Hanani, who's been there recently or has heard news of people who are there recently, brings him the tough news that the people of Jerusalem aren't, going, aren't doing well. That even though they've been allowed to return, Jerusalem is still a disaster. The, the, the walls, they lie in ruins. Now walls were essential in ancient civilizations to provide places of safety and flourishing for those who are coming from outside those walls, right? Because walls keep some people in and other people out. They were absolutely essential. The gates, they were burned down. And so there was no way to stop who was coming and going in those streets. And the people, they were distressed. Hananiah tells Nehemiah. So Nehemiah gets upset, he prays and he mourns and he fasts and he asks God to help him to do something and he keeps up those prayers and that fasting and that mourning for four months and then he gets a chance to talk to the king so that he can do something about the distressed nature of the people in Jerusalem. And the king says, Nehemiah, you've never been sad in my presence before, right? Right, because you're not allowed to be, but you never have been, um, and now you are. What's going on? This is the sadness of the heart. What do you want from me? And Nehemiah prays a quick popcorn prayer. You heard about it last week, right? So some of his prayers are long, some of them are short. He prays a short one here, and he goes to the king full of faith, and he asks for some stuff. You know what he asks? He asks for a decade of PTO. He's like, I'm gonna need some time away. And the king's like, how much? He's like, 10, at the most 12 years um, is what I'm gonna need. I'm gonna need also uh, millions of dollars in resources to help build your enemy's empire back up. Also, I'm gonna need a house. Um, and it needs to be nice in case people wanna come visit. And I'm gonna need a daily stipend to keep me going that's gonna include very rich foods from your lavish table and the best of your wine cellar. And the king's like, anything else? He's like, there's one little other thing. Um, You had previously written an edict that said that we couldn't do this. Um, I need you to now publicly declare that you were wrong and that you've changed your mind and that it's fine for me to go do this. 
And because the gracious hand of the Lord is upon Nehemiah, the king grants his request. How much faith would it take for you to go to your boss, who's probably more approachable than Octazerses, and say, I'm gonna need a decade of PTO and millions of dollars in resources. Oh, also I need you to tweet out that you've been absolutely incorrect in your leadership in the past and that now you trust me to lead us in a new direction. How how do you feel about that, right? That's career limiting. But because the gracious hand of the Lord is working with Nehemiah Octazus, he says, okay. And he sends Nehemiah off in a new office to become the temporary governor of Judah with the specific task of rebuilding security for the people of Jerusalem. Now you may hear that and you may go, well, that's incredible. I am clearly nothing like Nehemiah. And to an extent, listen, you're correct, right? Nehemiah is like an incredible leader. He has a very particular call, a very special anointing, and a very special empowering by God for a leadership task that actually requires supernatural assistance. Not many of us are gonna be called to do the things that Nehemiah does, right? And so, as we begin to study Nehemiah's leadership in Jerusalem, we could make the error of disconnecting because we make him quite niche, one of the chosen ones of God, right? A model of leadership only reserved for those of us in the room who feel called to lead something big and something profound. Now, now that would be helpful to an extent, certainly, because Nehemiah is a great resource for teaching leaders. Now, I've used principles from Nehemiah's life to teach high-level leaders in God's kingdom, and it's been effective. But listen, I think it applies to all of us who call Jesus Lord today. Because as I've lived with the story afresh for the last few months, I've realized that all believers have something to learn from Nehemiah. Because in essence, listen, Nehemiah lives out the very same thing that all of us have been called to do to one degree or another. It might, be not, it might not be history shaping in the same way. It might not be civilization changing to the same extent. But we've all been called to live out the same Impulse. Why do I say that? Well, listen, just a little bit more, little bit more background, then we'll get into the text, right? As we study the scriptures, we see some very big themes. You know what some of the most profound ones are? Firstly, we see a good and a sovereign God ruling and reigning over all things. You can't read the scriptures and come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible uh, isn't claimed to be good and powerful, right? He does what he wants and what he wants is good. And so if you read all of the scriptures, that's its claim. Uh, secondly, we see a messy but beloved species, right? Named humanity who are made in God's image and who do their best to love him and who struggle to believe that they are loved back by him, especially when they don't do their best to love him, right? That's us. That's where we enter the story. None of us are really reflected all that well in here, right? Everyone's a disaster except for this one guy, to quote Homer Simpson, uh, the theologian. Uh, The the third uh, theme that we see is that God goes to great lengths to show love to this rebellious people who have been separated from him through their rebellion and their sin. And this God doesn't sit passively and say, all right, figure it out. Get to a higher plane of understanding, work your way up the religious chain, and maybe one day you can peer over the ledge of holiness and see what I'm like. No, no, what does God do? God sends. 
God stoops low, right? And so he sends prophets, he sends signs and wonders, and then he sends his own beloved son to go win over these rebellious people. And then he dies for us and he's raised from the dead. And so he sends his Holy Spirit to teach us and to love us and to show us how much he cares for us. This God of the Bible, listen, is a missionary God who not only rescues people, but then listen, here's the big idea, also invites them into this ongoing sending pattern in the world. This loving God, this sending God, this saving God, this missionary God doesn't just rescue you, he invites you to participate in the rescuing of others. It's astonishing, right? He doesn't just send his son, he doesn't just send his spirit, he also sends his people. He invites us to participate in his ongoing redemption of the world. Goodness me, right? Uh, I don't know what it's like in our congregations this morning, but downtown, they don't seem to believe this. Um, And so, um, if I can just explain the room, they don't believe this. Um, And so, if you're struggling to believe this, imagine what the disciples felt when they've spent three years with Jesus and they have failed at every turn, at every turn. And what what does Jesus tell them? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Can you imagine James? John, Peter, they're like, well, it's not Judas, we know that. So uh, what does he mean by you, right? And he's pointing right at them. He's like, us? Us Muppets, failures, discouraged ones, right? Who can't get it right? Jesus kind of says that as the Father sends him, he's sending us, and they believe it. And you know what they do? They turn the world upside down because they believe in a sending God who sends people and invites them to participate in the sentness this missionary impulse of the people of God to not just live lives blessed by God, but to share that blessing in the midst of their lives with the people that they encounter because they've been sent by him. All right, why am I telling you this? Because when you believe this, then stories like Nehemiah's, right, become engageable in a meaningful way. Because then Nehemiah becomes not just some kind of superhero, he becomes another sent human being (laughs) with much to teach us. God interrupted his life, sent him on a particular mission, and he learned a lot as we went, as he went. And so, friends, if God has saved you, if you're a Christian today, listen, then you, little old you, rebellious you, unsure you, insecure you, you, like Nehemiah, are also sent on divine assignment. And you have lots to learn about what it looks like to live with that knowledge of that sentness. Okay, you ready? We're gonna work through the text this morning. Tyler, your people are broken this morning. I don't know if it's the 9 a.m., maybe the 11's gonna be full of the spirit. Um, But out in the suburbs where they're rowdy, pray for our downtown congregation. Um, I think they stayed at the football too long. Right, let's, let's look at it, right? Verse nine. I'm just kidding, I'm just used to a charismatic church where they talk back and have faith. Um, So verse, (laughs) verse nine. Then I, that's Nehemiah, came to the, I've never been booed before, but I did hear one from the back, so uh, this is a first for me. Then I, Nehemiah, came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now you're gonna, you're gonna learn that the governors of the province beyond the river don't enjoy receiving these letters, right? What's that letter that's Artaxerxes saying? Hey, I know we said before they can't rebuild. They can rebuild. They can rebuild. He's sent with my authority. 
Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, right? Let's just stop for a second. There's a principle there. If you're gonna live this life of sentness, if you're gonna say, hey, God has interrupted my life, saved me, and sent me, right? There's some things that you're gonna need to know. Like Nehemiah, there's gonna be some principles of God's work. The first one is this. Living sent doesn't mean we escape the very ordinary details of life. Living a sent doesn't mean that we get to escape the very ordinary details of life. Let me just go out our hearts here for a second because some of you are psyched, right? To hear this message and escape the mundanity of your life in order to pursue a call of God. This stirs up something of, of grandiose adventure in some of you. Like, yes, this is the life that I want. But the Bible is so honest that it doesn't let us escape the very real humanness even of those who do extraordinary things. You see, there's so much that's left out and so much drudgery and hard work that is implied even in this short sentence. Why do I say that? Well, scholars aren't sure exactly how long the gap is between the king saying, Nehemiah, you can go, and Nehemiah actually leaving. They aren't sure how long the gap is between the verse we finished with last week and the verse we start with this week. Some of them think it's like six months long, right? And you're like, six months? Imagine having to wait for six months for something. Some of them think it's five years. None of them think that it's a matter of days. Now there's not much support to say that Nehemiah has to wait five years, but he waits somewhere in the six month to five year category, right? And here's what they all agree that he spent the time doing. Somewhere between six months and five years, you know what Nehemiah did? Administration. He did admin for God's glory as one of God's sent once. He had to get the king's paperwork in order. He had to plan a route or a route um, for my current audience, right? He had to organize the supplies for the journey. He had to notify the army. He had to reappoint officers from the ongoing war with the Greeks, which was Persia's primary focus at the time for sure. They were at war, right? They didn't just have officers to just go with Nehemiah. He had to reassign battalions. This thing took a long time. Not only that, But the journey to Susa, we read these mystical names and we go, oh, Susa to Jerusalem, that sounds pleasant. No, it's 850 miles in the Middle East. Friends, I don't like to fly 850 miles in economy class, right? And I'm five foot seven. Um, I'm I'm a comfort beast, right? I'm like, these seats are not designed for humans. And so I'm like, hey, maybe the Lord's sending me. Where is it? 850 miles? I don't think he's sending me, right? Nehemiah has to walk that distance. Can you imagine walking that in the Middle Eastern sun? It takes months. And I don't imagine that all of it was awesome. Can you imagine how annoying journeying companions are for 850 miles of walking? A lot of it is just dull drudgery, but he keeps going. Friends, God may be calling you to some sort of Nehemiah-esque awesome task. When I look at the human potential represented in our church today, I get so excited, right? Some of you are gonna go on to do just magnificent things for the kingdom. But even if that's the case, regardless of the size and the scope and the awesomeness of the core, none of us get to escape the ordinariness of human life along the way. And it's not actually the idea that we should, right? So let me invite you into my boring suburban dad life. You know what I'll do after this message, which I believe, 
So I will believe that I'm sent by God in some way to the city of Austin. Some of you might say, you're not doing great. I get it, I know, trust me, no one's more disappointed than me, all right? Um, but I believe with all my heart that God has called us, sent us to the city of Austin. You might go, ooh, so what comes next? You know what comes next this afternoon? A nap. Because you're all exhausting, right? And so I'm gonna nap in Jesus' name, and then I'm gonna have our gospel community, our group, come around to our house, and they're very ordinary people. No offense to the 12 of you gathered across. You're wonderful, but they're ordinary. They sin, they're disappointing, they bring low-quality snacks. Um, Just ordinary stuff, and we're gonna study the Bible together, and we probably won't have any aha moments, right? We're gonna question each other's eschatology, and then I'm gonna send them out into the world. And then you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do what everyone else does. I'm gonna sit in Sunday night dread and look at my calendar for the week ahead. And so every Sunday night, my wife Sue and I sit together and we compare calendars. And I bring my phone, because it's 2022. She brings paper because she hates the planet and just wants it to burn. It's not why she does it, it's not why she does it. And only one of us will remember what the calendar actually says and it's the one who wrote it down on paper. Um, And we'll compare our weeks, right? And you know what our weeks of sentness will look like? School runs and extramural activities and meetings and doctor visits and Zoom calls, ugh. And getting your car serviced and getting your car licensed, Aaron Ivey, you're supposed to do that. Every year, right? All these sorts of things. Now listen, now listen. I wanna live for a big adventure. And so sometimes I come to those Sunday meetings like, oh, gross. But when I remember, no, no, God sent me to these particular things by his good hand and with his empowering spirit, then even the dull monotony of suburban life in Northwest Austin becomes an adventure of the divine, an adventure of the kingdom, a sent one who's sent by God on divine mission for his purposes and for his glory in the world. Friends, don't try to escape your responsibilities. Bring the sentness of God into the midst of them, all right? Let's go, verse 10. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. You always need a villain. Every good story needs a villain. Here he arrives. But when Sanballat, isn't that a good villain name? And Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Second observation, we're moving quickly, I love this. Living scent. Living scent may result in opposition. It may result in opposition. These two guys are gonna come up a lot in the story and so I don't wanna spend too much time on them today. We're gonna spend entire sermons on Sanballat and Tobiah, right? They're gonna be a laugh a minute. But essentially, these men represent people who have something to lose in the flourishing of Jerusalem. What Jerusalem gains, they lose in terms of power and influence. One of them is a Moabite, one of them is a Samaritan. Both of them despise the people of Judah and the feeling is mutual, friends. There's a lot of ethnic and um, cultural hostility between these groups, right? They vehemently disagree on what good and right worship is. And so the people of Judah say, no, no, there's only one way to worship God truthfully, right? And your syncretistic and compromised worship doesn't have you as part of the covenant people of God, right? And the Moabites and the Samaritans find that um, uh, reprehensible um, and arrogant in their mind. And so they oppose the, the reestablishment of right worship and people flourishing in the city of Jerusalem. But here's the thing, friends. 
Nehemiah hasn't done anything wrong yet. And yet, he's vehemently opposed. He's vehemently opposed. If you follow God's call in your life, opposition will come. Sometimes it'll be because you're doing dumb things, but sometimes it'll be because you're doing the right things. It does come. Friends, let me just encourage you with this. Don't look for fights. Don't be antagonistic. You don't have to RSVP to every conflict you get invited to. Do you know that? You can just be like, nope, no thank you. No, not attending. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't adopt a jerks for Jerusalem's prospering kind of campaign, right? Romans 12 tells us that if possible, it's not always possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, right? That, that's a big call to Christians. Some of you need to like put that on your computer before you jump online. As far as possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But here's the deal. Listen, Woo, people pleasers like myself, because we're like, yeah, that's great. All right, if we do this right, everyone will like us. No, opposition is inevitable when we live with the pursuit of our divine purpose, when we live with the call of the kingdom, as our guiding light, people will stand in our way. Some of those people will be external. There will be unbelievers who find the Christian worldview reprehensible. We understand that. Here's the disarming thing. Many of those will be internal because they're living some form of hybrid faith compromise and when they see someone sold out for the Lord living with his intended purposes, Right? They're gonna to wanna to call you back into the mess of compromise rather than into pure worship. And look at what troubles these guys. Here's a good test for us. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Isn't that sad? These guys don't want other people to do well. They're only thinking about themselves. I mean, welfare. Uh, the, the word speaks about holistic health. Someone else is coming to seek the flourishing of the people of Israel and they go like, we don't like that. We don't like that. They don't want the welfare of God's people. Friends, listen. If you're worried you might be a sandblat, right? Ask some honest friends, they'll tell you straight away, all right? Even just their hesitation will give you the answer that you need, right? Am I like sandblat? Well, you know, you are, right? Who's the sandblat in the group? You are. The, the, the pause tells you everything, right? But if you're worried you're acting like sandblat in opposition to someone else, it's a pretty pure sign um, uh, that, that you aren't operating on God's behalf in your opposition when you actually aren't seeking the welfare of other people. If you are angrily standing in the way of someone else's welfare in order to be right, then you may be sandalat. And if someone's standing in your way and their primary objective is to stop you from seeking the welfare of someone else, they may well be a sandalat. Sometimes you're being opposed because you're acting like a jerk. Sometimes you're being opposed because your ideas aren't right, or they're unkind, or they're ungracious. Sometimes you're being opposed by someone who doesn't seek your welfare or the welfare of the people you're called to serve. Here's the thing though, friends, listen. Oh man, this is good for my heart. In a world where approval is paramount, you probably can't follow God's call faithfully and never be opposed by anybody. I used to think that I could be the one exception. I could say it winsomely enough, or logically enough, or smartly enough, or just in a fancy accent enough, right? That people would go, no, that one guy, when he says it, no one objects, right? Clearly, that isn't the case. 
and it isn't supposed to be. Why? It isn't supposed to be possible. Who's the one who said everything right? Jesus. What did they do to him? They killed him because they didn't like what he said. He was always righteous in what he said. He was always winsome and loving and wonderful and kind and accepting to so many people that no one else was accepting to and they still hated him. Friends, it's inevitable. We do all that we can to be as winsome and Christ-like and kind as we possibly can always and we accept that opposition will come. Do you know that if you do this right, still your motives will be misunderstood your plans will be ridiculed. And anyway, you just press on without being crushed by the sense of rejection that comes as a result. Let me speed this up, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Next principle is this, living scent requires patience, and restraint. Oh, some of you aren't gonna like this, I know, um, I know, right? But I love this so much. Nehemiah could have arrived with a royal trumpet. He could have stood like in a Captain Morgan pose, right? One foot on the wall and read the king's decree while standing with, you know, with an air of royalty about him, his eyes lifted up to heaven. It would have been one of the most moving speeches ever recorded in Jerusalem's storied history, but he doesn't. He arrives quietly and then he takes a three-day weekend. You're like, you've been waiting for God's call forever and he arrives and the guy's are like, first order of business, what do we do? He's like, three-day weekend, right? Let's, let's have a rest, let's catch our breath. Why, is he lazy? No. <laughs> you will see that this dude works like a machine. But Nehemiah does know that he is limited. And so then he knows he has limited energy, he has limited understanding when he arrives and so he rests up and he stays low so that he'll be able to be useful for the long haul. So again, friends, this is attention. The people of God who are sent by God are called to work hard, to be sure, but they're also called to rest well. They're called to be patient so that they can go on to be tenacious in their work. Friends, I love the generation that's coming up kind of beneath me. I don't even know what generations are called anymore. We're just making up stuff, right? But I love hanging around young people because you know what I see? Hustle. Ooh, so much of it. You know what I see? Optimism, oof, stuff can change. Let's change it, right? I'm from Generation X. We were like, everything sucks, let's burn it down, right? Like Woodstock 99 was our defining moment. What should we do? Let's set it on fire, okay, right? And so um, that's what we did. We kind of gave up too quick. Hey, you guys think that you can, you can fix it, I love it. Praise the Lord, I think you can fix a lot of it. But what I see as a weakness of that is that the world becomes one of constant hustle and then added side hustle. And in the midst of all of that, friends, do you understand that you're a limited human being? And do you know that God is totally cool with that? I love in the Psalms, it says God knows we are human. You know that? He understands that we are dust. He remembers our frame. And so when he looks at you, he remembers like, man, you're amazing. And you're super weak. <laughs> and so he remembers rightly what we're like. Do you remember rightly what you are like? Oh, friends, Nehemiah gets this, it's amazing, right? And so he rests up first, he, he, he understands his own limitations. Verse 13, whoa, man, where does the time go? I went out by night by the valley gate, <laughs> I love these names, to the dragon spring. Now before you get too excited and say, Game of Thrones is true, right? The dragons, they had dragons. Um, we aren't sure in the Hebrew if that is dragon 
or jackal. Um, it's probably jackal, all right? Um, and then to the dung gate, right? Every town has one. Um, and so Nehemiah starts in the bad part of town, right? Dung gate. And he's like, what happens there? It's in the name. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate. Now he goes into the bougie part of town, right? They've got fountains. Other people got dung. These guys got fountains. And the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Here's the next principle. Living scent requires, uh, oh, Ken, you aren't gonna like this. I don't like this, but it's true. Living scent requires humble and thoughtful engagement with what's actually broken. Friends, it's tough to know from archaeological records exactly what route Nehemiah takes here. Some of these places continue to exist, some don't. We don't know where the Dragon Gate was, for instance, right? But what Nehemiah finds is that some are in worse condition than others. The valley that he refers to here is the Kidron Valley. We know that from um, archaeological uh, records. Do you know that from archaeological digs, we know that around the time of Nehemiah, about 450 BC, the line of the wall changes around the Kidron Valley. You know why? Because the terraced housing that had sat behind the wall into the Kidron Valley had fallen away down into the valley. It had been destroyed by one of the many um, invasions that had happened. And so someone like Nehemiah at the time of 450 BC, probably Nehemiah, clue, right, comes along and says, well, that's a net loss. We actually have to change the size of the city. I can't rebuild the walls up from the base of the Kidron Valley. We're gonna have to move this wall. He cuts his losses, but he has to see it in order to know it. Can you imagine if he had presumed and then told the people, no, no, the wall has to run through the Kidron Valley and he had never gone to see how broken it was? He would have been a cruel leader who had like pithy statements of like, you've just got to do it. And people would have gone, you haven't seen it. You don't understand how broken it is. But he would have had great one-liners, but he would have fixed the wrong thing. He goes and he inspects it himself before Nehemiah decides. And before, listen, before Nehemiah shares what needs to be done, he first takes the time to understand the situation for himself. He could have relied on secondhand reports. He could have just inspected a small portion of the wall and then made suppositions about the condition of the rest, right? And then he could have built a pretty high public platform and position off of very limited knowledge and he could have created a great political stir. But then he would have run into the inevitable outcome that he didn't actually know what was broken. And so he didn't actually know how to fix it. (laughs) Friends, if you live sent by God, you will be pressed into situations where you're called to seek the welfare of image bearers, which means that you will encounter a lot of what is broken down in this world. There are lots of broken things, have you noticed? Lots. The walls in some spaces have broken down in our society and fallen into the valley below. They seem irreparable. Go inspect them yourselves. The last two years have been the hardest leadership years I've ever experienced in my very short life, all right? That was a joke, no, okay. (laughs) I have learned about what it looks like to live as a sent one in Austin. You know how I've learned? By saying and doing really stupid stuff that I knew nothing about. (laughs) And having to be corrected. 
We've encountered in accelerated form over the last couple of years as a society a lot of the brokenness, right? And I have like a high justice meter. I'm like, let's go fix stuff. Let's go fix it, right? And so my instinct is to want to say something before I actually know anything. As a result, I've said some really stupid stuff about some issues that I didn't understand. I wish I'd taken the time to inspect the walls myself. That's not time wasted. And I'm not calling you to passivity. I'm calling you to intelligent engagement in Jesus' name. Drop the one-liners. They very really actually encapsulate what's going on. In a culture obsessed and driven, obsessed with and driven by outrage, maybe part of our witness is to be some of those who are slow to speak, <laughs> but who are quick to be actual helpful doers. The answer is very rarely able to be contained in an algorithm, algorithm generating cliched phrase. Stay away from them. You think things are busted? I agree. You're outraged? I get it. Be humble like Nehemiah and pray about it for months and study it with all you have and take it to the Lord and share it with Christian community and then get about fixing it when you're ready. Okay? We can fix some stuff. We need to be more thoughtful than we're being. We're gonna need to be more thoughtful than society's being. Okay, I'm nearly done. Verse 17. Then I said to them, this is one of the great leadership speeches, right? You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us. Rise up and build, look at this magnificent response. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. They got ready, right? They started to gather resources and they encouraged one another and they started the work of rebuilding the wall. Last observation. Second last observation. (laughs) Living sent leads others with a communal hopeful realism. Uh, Let me just do this quickly. This is such good leadership. Couple of things here. You see the plural pronouns? Us, we, You know what Nehemiah could have done? You fools. Look at them. Look at what they have done. No. He doesn't try to stand outside the strife of the people of God. He doesn't go, what the heck is wrong with you? He says, look at us. We're a mess. Let's do something about it. Friends, I know that many of you aren't excited about evangelical Christianity. (laughs) I get it. It's not they and them. It's us and we. It's the only way we fix this thing. It's us and we, right? Secondly, he's able to be real about their current state. He doesn't pretty it up. This is what we think leaders should do today. They should be like cheerleaders, right? They should be like uh, ranting coaches who, who just paint a picture that isn't reality. We would want him to stand up and say, guys, I've been up there. It's not that bad. We can do it. He stands up and he says, you see the trouble we're in? It's worse than you thought. Our city is in ruins. Our gates are burned. We suffered derision. Sometimes we think that living in faith means that we have to live with this denial-based optimism, right? Where we fail to see things as they really are and we minimize problems. Friends, we of all people know the brokenness of the world. We have a whole doctrine about it. But look at how he's able to push people to real hope. He says, God's hand is upon me. He has already moved in in moving the heart of our biggest obstacle, the king. And so rise up and build. And the people strengthen their hands. They move to, to, to start to get ready to help. Why? Listen, 
This is good leadership. Nehemiah has been honest enough to describe the actual brokenness of their situation. And he's been faithful enough to remind them of the real hope they have in God. And he's been wise enough to give them something tangible to do. I call this leadership posture hopeful realism, right? I don't know where I got that. I got that from some theologian. I can't find where. (laughs) It's not my own phrase, but I love it. It's a posture that we get to be distinct in in the world because we're hopeful because we believe in the resurrection and we're realistic because we know the doctrine of sin. And we can hold those two in tension. All right, verse 19. This really is the last point. But when Sanballat, that dude, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and now look at this, they've got another one, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Last observation, living scent, right sizes our obstacles and right sizes our opposition. Such a clear example of how godless opposition works, friends. It spreads to others, and it can feel overwhelming through sheer societal pressure, right? Suddenly they've got another dude, Geshem. Where'd this guy come from? I don't know. You know where he came from? Gossip and slander. Sanballat and Tobiah pulled him aside. He said, have you heard what Nehemiah's trying to do? You know what's my least favorite phrase as a leader? My least favorite phrase. It's the one that, that hurts the most, stings the most, irritates the most, is when someone comes up and says, um, people are saying, it's this nonsense. I always say, which people? Let's go ask them. Let's set up a meeting. What's their names? What's their number? Uh, and that's not for intimidation. That's for like, no, no, let's actually demystify this thing. Are you just confessing to gossip? People are saying, or are you actually trying to fix it? Are you trying to spread a false enemy? What are you, what are you trying to do? Right? Because these kind of things spread in communities, right? They bring an ominous but unrealistic third party threat. Oh, the king's not going to be pleased with this. Nehemiah's like, God took care of the king. Right? And then it resorts to mockery, it tries to belittle. What's this thing that you're doing? Right? It's so pathetic. Nehemiah, oh, he, he, he answers with certainty in the face of this opposition. What does he say? The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah right-sizes God, sees him as the God of heaven, allows him to right-size his opponents. Hey, if God is the God of heaven and we hire servants, right, then obstacles become smaller. Nehemiah goes, you may be governors in this region, but you're just dudes, so do your worst. Do your worst. God is working. I'm not gonna devote my energies to fighting you. I'm busy pursuing the call of God for the welfare of his people. Okay. Nehemiah, what a dude. (laughs) What a great example of what it looks like to live sent by God. This is not a Jesus duke, but this is biblical theology. Let me just position us in redemptive history at the end of the message. Because Nehemiah is a great example, but he isn't our hope. The walls of Jerusalem were a great endeavor, but they aren't our hope. Our hope lies and is anchored in the fact that 450 years later, another sent one of God would arrive in that same city, would arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus, the son of God. This time, the city actually has functioning walls. But you know what they've been using them for? They've been using them to keep people away from the covenant blessing of God rather than for the flourishing of the, and the welfare of the people who would inhabit that place. And so this Jesus, 
doesn't go build higher walls. You know what he does? Hebrews tells us he doesn't secure hope for us by keeping himself in the safety of the gates. Rather, he goes outside of the walls and outside of the gates to suffer derision and death like a sacrificial animal in order to secure our hope that we too might be able to enter into the heavenly city. Jesus was the ultimate sent one. And so we get to imitate him even as we imitate Nehemiah. Jesus submitted himself to the ordinariness of human life. Have you thought about that? He worked a job for like most of his adult life, sanding tables and moving rubble. Unbelievable. He encountered constant and fierce opposition, some from exterior, a lot from inside. He lived patiently and often with great restraint, biding his time, refusing to build empty platform for himself. He didn't judge our weakness and brokenness from afar, but he came and experienced it firsthand, emptying himself, taking on the form of a man and humbly arriving to be a sympathetic high priest with firsthand experience and knowledge of our brokenness and limitations. He was the ultimate hopeful realist who called out what was broken unashamedly but constantly lifted his eyes to the God of heaven and called his disciples to a lasting resurrection hope. And he, he right-sized even those who put him to death and so that while they opposed him, he was able to forgive them and call for mercy towards them. He never feared them. He never allowed the evil one and his servants to dissuade him from his work. And so friends, all the energy that I could muster for you today. I want you to recover your sense of sentness by remembering the one who was sent to save you. So we're gonna do in all six congregations what the church has done for 2,000 years at gatherings like this. We're gonna remember through communion that Jesus was sent to save us. But listen, as we take it, we're also gonna remember that we are the forgiven people of God, that he sends out on the great, advision, uh, the great adventure of the mission of God. What better way to live than as a sent one of God, like Nehemiah, and like you, and like me. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would persuade us of the, the truth of the text and of the truth of your promises and of the, the power of the fact that you have saved us and sent us. Why don't you help us now as we remember Jesus, the one sent to save us, that he succeeded in his mission, that he lived sense so that people like us, <laughs> even though sometimes we find ourselves amongst broken walls, can have hope. Lord, why don't you make us like Isaiah this morning? Just send us. May we be people who see the brokenness, who see the life that you've given us and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me, make me faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.